Our lesson of the day is Psalm 88. Let us read it together as printed in your bulletin. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician, set to Mahalath Leonoth, a contemplation of Heman the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, Let my prayer come before you. For my soul is full of troubles. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. Adrift among the dead. Whom you remember no more. You have laid me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. I am shut up and I cannot get out. Lord, I have called daily upon you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Shall your wonders be known in the dark? But to you I've cried out, O Lord. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. They came around me all day long like water. Loved one and friend you have put far from me. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, now speak to us words of wisdom and comfort from this scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that the Psalter is the prayer book of the Bible, and we know it's full of all different kinds of prayers. It's got prayers that thank and praise God. It's got prayers that confess sin. It's got prayers of petition that ask God to act in some way. And of course, it also has prayers of lament, prayers of lamentation, indeed, one out of three. Uh, of the Psalms are lamentations. Psalm 88 is just such a lamentation. It is a sad song. It is a song of pain, uh, a prayer of pain. But it's very interesting. It's unique. Uh, most of the Psalms of lament, if you go read other Psalms of lament in the Psalter, you'll find that they resolve before the end. They go deep into despair and then they bounce back. So that by the end of this psalm of lament, you, it'll end on a note of hope. Uh, the psalmist, the one praying through their pain, ultimately finds encouragement, and the psalm ends on a high note. That's how most of the psalms of lament go. Psalm 88 is unique. It is unique among the psalms of lament in that it does not end with a word of hope. There's no bounce back in this psalm. In fact, in the Hebrew, the last word of the psalm is darkness. Verse 18, my only friend is darkness. This psalm has a lot of questions that don't get answered. This psalm ends 
in the darkness. We know from the title this psalm was written by Heman. Uh, we know from the title here and from other places in Scripture, like First Chronicles, that Heman was a descendant of Korah, and that means he worked in the tabernacle uh, during the time of David. The sons of Korah became the chief musicians in Israel. They were the leaders of the choir and the orchestra at the temple. And so Heman seems to have led a guild of musicians who in turn led Israel's praise. And Heman was a poet writing songs for the singers of Israel to perform. Psalm 88 is the only song in the Psalter composed by Heman. So I guess you could say he was kind of a one-hit wonder. Uh, this ever was a hit of any kind. Um, but several of the Psalms are attributed to sons of Korah. I think there are 11 in all that are attributed to the sons of Korah. So he may have had a hand in others. Uh, but it's important for us to understand the man who wrote this psalm was a worship leader in Israel. He was a man of prominence. He was a leader in the nation of Israel, a leader among the covenant people. This psalm is shocking uh, because we don't think spiritual leaders should talk the way Heman does in this psalm. Leaders shouldn't speak with such despair. Uh, in fact, we don't think any believers should talk this way. Probably most of us would uh, would default to that. It's as if Heman says in the psalm, I am miserable, I am never going to be happy again, the darkness is too dark, the darkness is too thick, it's hopeless, I am despairing of my life. And it is easy for us to hear words like that and think, what could be more unspiritual than that? What could be more unspiritual than those kinds of thoughts? That's our tendency. Uh, I, I think we have a tendency to think if someone is depressed, then surely it must be because they are in sin or they're immature in some way. Look a little more closely at this psalm. The psalm has three sections. There are different ways to organize this psalm, but I think the easiest way to break it down is to view it as having three sections, each one full of despair in its own way. Each section is marked out at the beginning by words addressed to Yahweh or to the Lord where Heman says, I cry out to you, Lord. Something to that effect. You've got this in verse 1, verse 9, and verse 13. Those mark the different sections of the psalm. So in verse 1, he says, I cry out to you, Yahweh. And then he gives his reasons for crying out. He cries out to God because God is the God of salvation. He brings his prayer before the Lord. And why does he do this? Well, verse 3, his soul is full of trouble. He's on the edge of death, about to fall into the grave. In fact, in verses 4 and 5, he's like a dead man already. Uh, he's already experiencing death, as it were, even as he lives. He's been buried alive. He has no strength. He's weak like a dead man. He's been cut off from God's hand, the source of life. He's in darkness. God's wrath is upon him. He has no sense of God's love. Only a sense of God's anger against him. No sense that God is for him. Only that God is turned away from him. He goes on to say that God's waves are coming over him, washing over him. And so he shifts the imagery from being buried in the ground to drowning by water. You know, which would you rather want? To be buried alive or drown in the floodwaters? That's how he's describing his condition. And when he talks about these waves washing over him, it's like there's another flood, only he's outside of Noah's ark. He's about to be left behind. He's about to lose everything. Verse 8, he says he's been separated from all his companions and indeed become abhorrent to them. Everybody's turned against him. He's trapped and he can't escape. 
You know, there are very few things more painful than broken relationships. But that's Heman here. He is friendless. He's been forsaken by everyone. The second section begins in verse 9 again with another cry to God. He says he's cried out daily. He's reached his hand out to God, but God won't take hold of his hand. He reaches up to God, but God won't reach down to him. Heman is seeking God, but God hides. God won't show Himself, His face to Heman. And then He asks a series of pointed questions. like He's cross-examining God in a courtroom. This is how He's making His case with these questions. And all the questions have to do with death. Will you work wonders among the dead? Can your mercy be declared from the grave? Can your wonders be seen in the dark? Can your righteousness be known? In the land of the forgotten, that's the land of the dead. He's saying, look, God, if you let me slip into the grave, I can't praise you there. What good could possibly come out of death? Everything will be lost. Death is the tide that washes everything away. Heman knows death raises questions about God's intentions. Death raises questions about God's promises and even God's power. If God is the God of salvation, as Heman identified Him in verse 1, then why doesn't God act to save His own? Why does God abandon His own to the grave? It makes no sense. Heman is perplexed to the point of agony. And then the third cry to the Lord comes in verse 13, the final section of the psalm. He prays and his prayers aren't answered. Lord, why have you cast off my soul? The imagery here is of the Lord just casting his soul away into the trash heap. Heman's soul has been cast into the garbage. Why do you hide your face from me? Heman's saying, I'm seeking you, but you won't let me find you. He says, I've been so afflicted, I'm ready to die. He sees no point in continuing to live. He has lost the will to live. That's how far gone Heman is. Life is no longer worth living for him. God's fierce wrath terrorizes him. God's terrors engulf him. He's up to his neck in trouble and the troubles keep rising. And so verse 18, he says, loved ones and friends you have put far from me. You've left me all alone. Heman says, I have no community. I have no one. And so he closes out the psalm saying, now my only friend is darkness. His only companion is the darkness. That's how the psalm ends. In the dark with no light and no answers. Indeed, three times this psalm mentions darkness. It's interesting to look at the darkness theme in this psalm. Three times, verse 6, verse 12, verse 18. This is a psalm full of darkness from beginning to end. And it's interesting too, there's only one petition in the whole psalm. Only one thing he asks God to do. And that comes in verse 2 when he says, listen to me. He says to God, incline your ear to me. Listen to me. Hear what I have to say. Heman just wants somebody to hear him. He just wants somebody to pay attention to him and listen to him. Heman wants to be heard. It's like he's speaking into a void. And he wants God to acknowledge his trauma and his depression and his pain and his fear. Most of the psalm is just Heman describing all the ways God has afflicted him. He knows God is the one behind his affliction. Most of the psalm is Heman just describing all the ways God has disappointed him and failed him. And even at the end of the psalm, no deliverance 
is in sight. Now, does this psalm bother you at all? I think for many of us, this psalm is disturbing because it doesn't have the happy ending we expect. And I think this is a problem for us. We don't really know how to deal with our pain. We don't know how to deal with other people's pain. We don't know how to do pain and disappointment. We don't know how to do them well. And again, we have this tendency to think that you know, if we're really godly, then the less we'll let the pain show through. The more we'll be able to bury that pain and hide that pain. But no, Heman, an inspired songwriter and leader in Israel, Heman shows us that's not true. Here is a godly man who is expressing the depth of his anguish. He's expressing his misery and his despondency and his depression. Obviously, Heman cried to God morning and evening without ceasing for a long, long time and never got an answer. You wouldn't just pray one day and then go write this psalm. Heman went a long, he even says from my youth. We don't know how old he is, but even from, he says from my youth. I have been terrorized by you. This is a long-term struggle with what we in the modern world would call depression or something very much like it. I said in the announcements, I one time gave somebody this psalm who I thought perhaps was struggling with depression. They read it and they said, yes, that's it. That is exactly what I'm experiencing. This is a poetic description of depression. Heman asks all the why questions. We want to ask when we're suffering. But he never got an answer. He just had to learn to live with the pain, with the agony, with the unanswered questions. He had to learn to live with the darkness. There's no indication here his suffering is due to sin. No indication there's something he needs to repent of. He seems to have done everything right, and still everything has gone wrong for him. All of his hopes have been dashed. All of his expectations unfulfilled. As we look at this psalm, we see he experienced both what you could call inner and outer darkness. The inner darkness of mental and emotional anguish where he has no sense of God's presence in his life. All he can feel is God's wrath against him and overwhelming him. But then there's also outer darkness where his circumstances are disastrous. We're not told the specifics of his suffering in this way, but all of his circumstances, all the circumstances in his life are painful. His friends have abandoned him. He feels trapped and alone and his troubles are continually increasing. What do we do with a psalm like this? How do we deal with it? You know, I think for a lot of American Christians, a lot of American Christians are kind of naive about suffering. We don't know how to process pain. Sometimes we wonder if we're even allowed to acknowledge how hard things are or how bad we feel. And we're trained, I think, by our culture, even in the church, maybe especially in the church, we're trained to expect things to go well. We expect our lives to be happy for one day to be better than the last. And so when they don't go well, that just adds to the aggravation that aggravates the pain even more we think we should have our best life now you don't have to be in joel osteen's church to kind of default to that we think life should go well Uh, we 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 think it's normal to be comfortable it's normal to be pain-free that's just how we're trained to think in our culture including i would say especially in our church culture the american church 
is not known for dealing well with people who are broken, people who are shamed, people who are hurting, people who have been abused, people who are depressed, people who are lonely. We're not known for dealing well with people who are mentally or physically ill. Many of us just want to screen them out. Put on blinders so we don't see them. Many of us just want to screen out Psalm 88 and and just tear this page out of the Bible and pretend it's not there because it doesn't fit our categories of what the Christian life is supposed to look like, what the godly life is supposed to look like. That's some of us. But for others of us, you know Psalm 88 all too well. It is all too familiar to you. These words are yours. You've dealt with the darkness. You've dealt with depression, with inexplicable suffering. You can identify with Heman's words and say, yes, this is what I'm going through. You have felt the darkness, the inner and outer darkness. You have felt the aloneness where your friends and even your God seem to have abandoned you. You have felt the waves of of anger and wrath wash over you and begin to engulf you. There are some Christians who think that a real believer could never get depressed. That's just not true. We see it here in this psalm. In fact, there are a lot of great Christians down through the ages who have suffered from some kind of melancholy, as it used to be called, or we would say depression or despondency. A great example of this is from the 19th century London pastor Charles Spurgeon, who was undoubtedly one of the greatest preachers to ever live, but who also struggled mightily with depression for much of his life. And he wrote a commentary on the Psalms called A Treasury of David. It's such a good commentary on the Psalms. But it's interesting because you can tell a lot of his comments on Psalm 88 are really autobiographical. Spurgeon makes the point that the mind can descend lower than the body. Physically, there's no such thing as a bottomless pit, but mentally there is. Physically, we can only die one death, but mentally you can die a thousand deaths every day. Yes, we can suffer greatly in our bodies, but we can suffer even more in our spirits. But then Spurgeon goes on to point out that such suffering does not mean you're lost. It doesn't even mean that you lack faith or have sinned in some way necessarily. Yes, God is the God of the happy. But he is also the God of the depressed. Yes, God gives joy, but he can also give grief. And so I think what Spurgeon would say to us, what I want to say is that if Psalm 88 is your prayer, if you identify with these words of Heman, you can say, yes, That's what I'm going through. What Heman describes, that's me. You need to understand, church is for you. When you come to church, you are in the right place. The church is to be for broken and hurting people. No, the church doesn't always deal well with people in that condition. Sometimes the church does a bad job ministering to the depressed or the despondent, or the hurting. But there's no doubt, this is where you should be. Because this is where you're going to find words of wisdom like Psalm 88. Why is this psalm even in the Bible, you might wonder? Why is such a hopeless prayer in the Bible? Why didn't God censor this prayer when proposed psalms to be included in the book of Psalms, the canonical book of Psalms are being proposed, why didn't somebody say, oh, no, not this one, we can't include this one? 
Why did this prayer become part of Israel's repertoire? Why did it make the cut for Israel's hymn book? I can just guarantee you, a modern hymnal would never have allowed a song like this in. It's just, people would say it's just too depressing. We can't sing that in church. We can't have a song that doesn't resolve into joy by the end. We just can't. It's at least got to be a chorus that brings us back to joy, right? Why is this prayer in the Bible? God included this prayer in the canon to show us he is okay with his people feeling this way. He is okay with his people praying this way. God is not ashamed to identify us when we are driven to pray this way. Heman is blunt. He is honest. He is raw. He voices his frustrations. He raises tough issues, tough questions. God has included this psalm in the canon because God wants us to know He is still our God even when we are desperate. God is our God even when we are depressed. Why is this psalm included in the canon? Because God wants us to know. God is not afraid of the dark. God is the God of the darkness. Even in the darkness, He is still God. This psalm is included because God can handle it. You are allowed to pray this way, even invited to pray this way. God is not afraid of our questions. You think you've got some tough questions? God says bring them on. He wants us to bring our questions, even the hardest questions, to Him. God wants you to talk to Him from your pain and in your pain and through your pain. God does not want you to think that you've just got to put on a happy face and go to church and pretend like nothing's wrong and pretend like everything's okay, even when it's not. God is not afraid of the dark. Prolonged periods of anguish and aloneness. Prolonged periods of prayers that go unanswered. Do not mean you're not a real Christian. It doesn't mean you're lost. This psalm shows us, yes, sometimes we dwell in the shadows. Sometimes we live in the darkness. Terrible things can happen to a true child of God. And it doesn't mean you're not a child of God. Even if you feel like you're in the darkness for the longest time. And so really, this psalm is not just about the darkness. This psalm is also a nightlight. This psalm is also a nightlight in the midst of the darkness. It's like this psalm is a tunnel. You enter into this psalm and you enter into a tunnel. And this psalm, even though it never tells us, even though it never talks about the light, this psalm leads us to the light at the end of the tunnel. Again, not because it ends on a note of joy, but I would say precisely because it doesn't. That's why we need this psalm, because it doesn't give us that happy ending. That's why it serves us so well in times of darkness. Psalm 88 shows us what to do in the darkness. What to do in the midst of pain and anguish. It shows us we can turn our pain into prayer. Indeed, we can turn our pain into praise. And how do we do that? Simply by talking about it to God. It's really that simple. Talk to God about your pain. 
And that in itself is a form of praise. That is a prayer God accepts. Because when you do that, yes, you're still in the darkness, but you're now praying in the dark. Yeah, you're still in the dark, but you're worshiping in the dark. And that's really the whole point of the psalm. You can worship God in the dark. You can be in a place of despair and despondency. But that place of despair and despondency can become a kind of sanctuary, a place of praise, if you will take that despair and that despondency to God. And so what is Psalm 88 saying to us? It's saying, pray your fears. Pray your questions. Pray through your hopelessness. Pray through your frustrations. Pray your anguish. Pray your depression. Not necessarily because that's going to make it all better and make it all go away. But just because that's what you're to do. That's what God wants you to do. See, it's not just that prayers of despair can't eventually lead us back around to praise, but the prayer of despondency itself the, the, the very act of lamenting to God and before God is itself an act of praise. There are other psalms of lament that could be read that way, where you, you, you lament something and then finally you, you turn to praising God. But not Psalm 88. Okay? Psalm 88, the psalmist goes into a tailspin and he never seems to get out of it. This psalm is full of despair from beginning to end. In fact, if anything, the ending is worse than the beginning. But what does that do for us? It shows us that when we articulate our despair, when we articulate our hopelessness before God in prayer, it is a form of worship. Simply talking to God about your hurts, simply talking to God about your pain, somehow brings glory to God. In fact, I know it's kind of counterintuitive to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's true. In times of darkness, we often learn more about God's grace and about God's patience and about God's goodness than when things are going well. Sometimes God has to take everything else away so we can discover what we really have in Him. It's when you're clinging to God alone because every other prop's been taken away, everything else is gone, it's just God. That's all you have. When you're in that situation, you come to know God in a new way. That was certainly the experience of Job. Satan accused Job of serving God only for the benefits package. Does Job serve God for nothing? Satan asked. Surely Job is just in it for the good things God provides. So all those good things were taken away and Job was left with God alone. So it is with Heman as well. But Job and Heman both keep crying out to God even when God seems to have abandoned them? Even when everything else has been taken away? Job and Heman learn to seek God in new ways in the midst of their pain. They kept seeking God in the dark. And because they did so, they were matured. They grew in wisdom. They were given new insights. In fact, this psalm, it's, it's translated as a contemplation, but it's really the word maskal in the title of this psalm. That means a teaching to make one wise. See, there you go. What happened to Heman as he kept crying out to God in the darkness? Heman became wise in his agony. His agony 
made him wise and matured him. Psalm 88 is really a wisdom psalm. What does it look like to suffer in wisdom? Psalm 88 shows us. See, we are right to expect a lot from God. God has made big promises and we should expect big things from God. And we're right to ask God hard questions when His presence and His promises are nowhere to be found. How can God be God when the righteous suffer? How can God be God when it seems His own people have been abandoned? How can God be God when He doesn't seem to be doing what He said He would do? How can God be God when He is silent? How can God be God when He doesn't respond to our cries and our screams? And at times like this, it's like we want to say to God, all right, God, if you're going to make Romans 8.28 come true, if you're going to work this for my good, then you've got a lot of work to do. You need to get to work, God. We want to say, God, you know, if you love me, you sure have a funny way of showing it. We want to say, God, you're all I've got, and I'm not even sure I've still got you. God, you're all I've got, and I'm not even sure I like you (laughs) anymore. But Psalm 88 shows us God is still God. God is still our God, even in the dark. God is still God. God is still our God, even when there's not a shred of evidence to back up that claim, even when it seems God has abandoned us to darkness, even when all the evidence points in the other direction, no, even then, in the dark, God is God. God is not just at work and present in our lives when we're happy and things are going well. God also works under the cover of darkness. And God is at work even when we can't see Him or sense Him. You need to understand how unusual and unique this prayer is, Psalm 88. I don't think you will find a prayer like this in any other religion. In fact, in other religions, it is only the unfaithful who pray this way. The godly would never pray this way. In other religions, you're either supposed to treat pain as an illusion and bury it, Or you're supposed to rise above it in your own strength. But Heman knows he can do neither. Here, despair is presented as a form of praise. Despair is prayed and God accepts it. This is what Heman does. Look again at verse 1. He says, O Lord... O Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. That's really the most amazing thing about this psalm. The psalm itself is an act of faith. Heman keeps coming to God again and again and again, despite the fact that God keeps ignoring him and refusing to answer him. Heman doesn't give up on God, even though it seems like God has given up on him. You know, if you only talk to others about your pain, but not to God, if you only talk to others about your despair, but not to God, then really that's just grumbling. Uh, And Israel had a habit of doing that, a habit of grumbling. You know, if you have, say, trouble at a store, who do you want to talk to? You don't want to just talk to another employee. You want to speak to the manager. You want to go talk to the person in charge. 
And that's what Heman is doing here. He's saying, I want to talk to the manager. I want to talk to the person in charge. I want to voice my complaints to you, God, because you're the one who's in control of everything. And that's ultimately what we have to do as well. But you know, another astounding thing here is that Heman doesn't, it's not just that he doesn't go to other people, he goes to God. It's that he goes to God and not, say, some other would-be God. If you decide to give up on God and take your troubles elsewhere, that's really idolatry. You're looking to another God with a small g to deliver you. And that God with a small g can't do it. And that's what a lot of people do. They they finally say, well, I've been living in darkness so long, I've got to find some way to drown my problems. So they turn to alcohol, and they try to drink their problems away. Or they turn to sex or some other way of distracting themselves or trying to numb themselves against the pain. All of those are idols. They will not deliver you. In fact, they're only going to make things worse because every idol is really cruel. Every idol is a cruel taskmaster. This is really the amazing thing about Heman's prayer. It's that it gets prayed at all. The really amazing thing here is that Heman did not turn to idols, that he did not offer up an idolatrous prayer, that he kept praying to Yahweh as the God of his salvation. He keeps crying out to the very God who is ignoring him, who is not listening, who is not answering. But Heman knows there's no other place to turn. There's no other place he can find help. And so he has to keep waiting and keep praying to Yahweh anyway. Heman is going through intense suffering and it raises all kinds of questions for him. You know, the protest atheism that arose in the West, especially after World War II, some of their objections to God sound kind of like the kinds of questions that Heman raises here. Now, there's a big difference that I'm going to come to in a moment. But the kinds of questions that the protest atheists raised, they sound a lot like the the kinds of questions that Heman raises here. Protest atheism pits God against suffering. And the protest atheist would say things like this. There's no way God exists. Just look at the world all around us or even at your own life. There is obviously no God because there is so much suffering, evil, and injustice. Where is God? Surely if there was a God, he would answer, he would do something. He doesn't, so he must not be there. Atheism follows. Now, I don't know how there can actually be evil in a world without God, because without God there is no morality. I think the atheists have a real problem on their hands when they try to make this kind of argument. Uh, What they affirm, the existence of evil, depends upon what they deny, which is the existence of God. But set all that to the side for just a moment. Grant that the protest atheist has a point. Doesn't God have a lot of explaining to do? A lot to answer for. Aren't there really legitimate questions that can be raised against God when you look at the shape of the world around us, even when you look at your own life? And the answer is yes, but God does something even better than give us an explanation for evil or an answer to our questions about evil. God enters into evil Himself and endures evil Himself. God responds to our protests about suffering and injustice by taking suffering and injustice upon Himself and enduring them in their worst possible form. See, Heman's prayer is really not just Heman's prayer. Psalm 88 is not just Heman's prayer to God. It is ultimately the prayer of Jesus. Heman was simply a pencil sketch, an outline 
if you will. Jesus comes and colors it in and He fills it with Himself. He is the one who truly and uniquely suffers what Psalm 88 describes. Indeed, Jesus is the one who takes all our pain and suffering upon Himself. He takes it into Himself. He gathers it up into Himself. And indeed, He even takes all of our sin and all we deserve and He makes that His own as well. He unites Himself to us so as the righteous one, He can suffer for the unrighteous. He can endure the wrath and the terrors of this fallen world and the wrath and the terrors we deserve because of our sin. You know what Psalm 88 is really about? Psalm 88 is really about the cross. The one who truly prays Psalm 88 is Jesus. He makes this psalm His own. He experiences all Psalm 88 describes. In the depths of his own experience, he fulfills Psalm 88 as he gathers all the pain and anguish of a fallen world into himself at the cross. And he makes this lament his own. Think about the ways the Gospels describe Jesus as He approaches the cross and is nailed to the tree. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and agony, sweating even great drops of blood, as it were. He's buried under the waves of God's wrath. He's thrown into the pit of the tomb. He calls out to God on the cross and He hears no answer. He is forsaken by His Father and all His other companions. He's betrayed by a close friend. He is abandoned by those he had just shared a meal with. He reaches out to his father, but there is no return. And most significantly, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, as he is hanging on the cross, he is covered in darkness. Darkness is his only friend. And yet even in that darkness, Jesus prays and praises. If you've been to uh, one of our Good Friday services, you know how when we come to the end of our Good Friday service, remembering what Jesus did on the cross, we dim the lights to the point where it's pretty dark. We do that so we can worship in the dark. We do that because it becomes a little picture, a little symbol of what Jesus did on Good Friday on the cross when Jesus worshiped in the dark. When Jesus served in the dark. When Jesus stayed true to God in the dark. See, Jesus does not just allow us to pray about our own feelings of God forsakenness. No, Jesus experiences Himself the ultimate God forsakenness. God makes God forsakenness His own at the cross and He does it for us for our sake. And so we can say with Heman, God, I'm hurting. God, I'm in agony. And in Jesus, God says back to us, me too. I am hurting too. I am with you. I've been there and I am there. And suddenly we realize when we read Psalm 88 in light of the cross, we realize, no, we're not alone. God has not left us all alone in the dark. We might feel alone, but we are not alone. Actually, we are experiencing what Philippians 3 calls the fellowship of His sufferings. 
And because of the cross, we now know the Lord is always with us, even in the midst of our greatest afflictions. Indeed, the Lord owns our afflictions and makes them His. He makes our pains His own. Don't be afraid to use Psalm 88 when you need it. It's there in your Bible for a reason. Now, Psalm 88, if this is the only type prayer you ever pray, maybe something is wrong because there are other kinds of psalms. You should use them as well. But I want to say, you know, if you never pray Psalm 88 type prayers, you know, for yourself or perhaps on behalf of others that you see suffering, something is also wrong. We need Psalm 88. We need to learn to pray this way. Psalm 88 is there when you need it. So you will have words to use when it seems all is lost. And indeed, Romans 8 goes on to tell us, even when words can't capture the pain, even when the words of Psalm 88 aren't enough to capture the pain and agony you're going through, the Spirit groans within you and through your groans, praying to God in a way that goes beyond words. The Jesus who has suffered for you has given His Spirit to suffer in you. That you'll be joined to Him so that you will know the fellowship of His sufferings in the midst of your own affliction. Psalm 88 looks unanswered. But really there is an answer ultimately. Heman gets the answer to his prayer in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to Heman's cry in Psalm 88. Jesus fills the gap between what God has promised and what we experience. Jesus fills the gap between the glory God has promised and the everyday affliction we find ourselves in. Jesus fills the gap between us and God when God seems distant. When God seems far away, Jesus fills that gap and brings God near. Indeed, Jesus is the answer to all Heman's questions. All his questions about death are answered by Jesus. He has entered the grave and come out the other side. He was thrown into the bottomless pit of death and broke out of it. Heman wondered if God could do wonders in the realm of the dead. Jesus shows us the greatest wonder of all. God raising the dead. Heman asked, do the dead rise up and praise you? And now, because of Jesus, we can say, you bet they do. You bet the dead rise up to praise you. Because of Jesus, we know death has been overcome. Because of His resurrection. There is nothing wrong with you that a resurrection won't cure. There's nothing wrong with you a resurrection won't fix. And that's where you're headed. Jesus says to us, you're always on my heart as I appear day and night before my Father. Jesus says to us, I can sympathize with you in your pain and sorrow. Jesus says to us, I know what it's like to be overwhelmed with grief, to feel like you've been buried alive, to feel like you're being engulfed by waves of wrath. And Jesus says in the midst of all of that, I sympathize with you and I will not leave you or forsake you. Indeed, Jesus says to us, even when you are not able to pray, I am praying for you. Even when it feels God is far away, I am near to you. Even when you're down in the pit, I am lifting you up before the Father. When it seems death will swallow everything up, Jesus says, no, I have slain 
death for you. Even when it seems darkness is your only friend, there is a friend who sticks even closer, Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for being our God, even in the darkness. We now know, even when you feel distant from us, Jesus is near to us. In Jesus, Your Son, You draw near to us. We thank You for this psalm, for it is truly a gift. A gift You've given to us that we might suffer well and grow in wisdom in the midst of our suffering. Help us to praise You, O God, even from the pit. Help us to praise You even in the darkness. Help us to turn our pain into prayer. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.